Well, this morning we're in part two of our series called Speech. And we're looking at three of Paul's speeches in the book of Acts. Last week we looked at verse, or chapter 14. This week we're looking at chapter 17, which is a famous speech where it's Paul on Mars Hill. And we're going to see how, how Paul speaks to sophisticated people who love knowledge. Now this is meant to be a hands-on series, practical series, where we're learning from Paul, thinking about the friends and the opportunities we have in our lives. The opportunities we have to speak to our friends, the opportunities we have to speak to different kinds of people, Paul will instruct, uh, instruct us in those areas. Scripture says to follow Paul, to follow Paul's example as he follows Christ. And I take it that would include the way he communicates the good news as well. So consider this series a time to watch and learn from the Apostle Paul on how to evangelize, how to tell people the good news. For this series, I've learned uh, much from the book The Heart of Evangelism by a man named Jerem Bars. Um, he says that Paul's speeches in Acts 17 and in Acts 13, which we'll look at next week, uh, follow seven principles to make the gospel known to different people. Uh, so he, his seven principles are these. One, showing respect. Two, building bridges for the gospel. Three, understanding what others believe. Four, speaking the right language. Five, reason persuasion. Six, clarifying the good news and seven, challenging the heart and mind. We'll see Paul doing all these in our text today. So let's read from Acts chapter 17, and we're going to read from verse 16 to verse 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler want to wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the idols of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we, we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are his we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also 
were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we come to receive from you. We come to hear from you. And I pray that you would open hearts to receive the good news today. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we see in this text is that communicating the good news to sophisticated people will likely include heartbreak. Verse 16, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Author David Pallison has written a book recently called Good and Angry. David Pallison's been a biblical counselor for many years, and he's written many books. But in that book on anger, he defines anger as an active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. Okay? So to simplify it, he says that anger in the heart is something that we'd say, I'm against that too. I am against that. In verse 16, Paul is in Athens alone. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. And it says he's provoked or angry. But why is Paul angry? His anger came, as verse 16 says, as he saw that the city was full of idols. At this time in history, in the first century, when Paul is giving this speech, the city of Athens apparently had more statues and idols than men. And Paul is expressing, I'm against that to the city's idols. Now, what is an idol? Tim Keller wrote a book, a um, great book called Counterfeit Gods about idolatry. And in that book he says, an idol is usually a good thing that we make ultimate. We say, unless I have that, I'm nothing. It's something you find your all in, your comfort in. You're living for that. And if you can't, end, if you can't get it, you might just end it all. Do you know the idols that your friends are living for? Is it approval? Is it control? Is it video games? Is it fitness? It's usually a good thing that they've made an ultimate thing. And if you're wanting to reach sophisticated people, you'll want to know what it is that they're living for. Maybe it's knowledge. Maybe it's to get a PhD. Can you indicate what the idol of their heart is? Now, before we start pointing fingers at people, let me warn the Christians here. It's easy to inflate our spiritual egos thinking, I'm glad I'm not like those guys over there or those girls over there. I'm glad I'm not like that church over there. Because we go to church or because we love Jesus. But beware the Pharisee within you. Christians and church members are not Jesus. And Christians and church members struggle and cozy up to idols as well. Listen to this from Tim Keller who says, The great danger, because it is such a subtle temptation which enables us to continue as church members and feel nothing is wrong, is not that we become atheists, but that we ask God to coexist with idols in our hearts. Friends, the Lord is jealous. He is to be your God if you're a Christian. And you are to be his person. Don't cozy up to idols. Do you know your weaknesses? What idol right now is coexisting with God in your heart? Do you hate your idols? Jesus is the only one able to win your heart back from the idols that are controlling you. He's able to melt your heart once again from the idols that are hardening that heart towards him. And once he's got your heart back, you're ready to follow Paul and pursue your friends with the message of Jesus. 
But let us start with ourselves and look in and do a little self-examination on the idols that we're hugging up to. And then, as what happens with Paul, his anger at the idols actually led him to ongoing conversations. He didn't get angry at the people in Athens or withdraw from them. Rather, he entered into some ongoing conversations with them. Look at verse 17 to 21. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Paul's routine when he went to a new city was to go to the synagogue, the place where Jewish people worship God, and he'd go to them and tell them the message of Jesus, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. He was flexible. He spoke to Jewish people who had an understanding of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. He, he spoke to God-fearing, devoted people that recognize the Scripture but don't have the heritage of the Jewish people. And he also spoke to philosophers, some from the Stoic school and some from the Epicurean school. Notice that as there is this ongoing conversation between Paul and the philosophers, they're insulting Paul, calling him a babbler, and others say he's preaching a foreign God. So there's some misunderstanding in the crowd about what he's doing. Because as verse 18 says, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. What was Paul doing? He reasoned, he conversed, and he dialogued with people back and forth. There was a give and take in this conversation. John Stott notes, he seems deliberately to have adopted the famous Socratic method of dialogue involving questions and answers. Conversation for Paul is a way to know these people. It's also a process. He's learning about what they believe, and he's, bring, he's, he's learning what they believe in order to bring the gospel to the inconsistencies and confront the idols in their heart. Francis Schaeffer was a man, maybe you've heard of him, who was deeply committed to bringing the message of Jesus to different sorts of people. He had a, uh, a home that he and his wife and some other Christians used to open up to anybody who was interested in dialoguing about God. There was only one rule. You couldn't uh, mention names or controversies. He wasn't there to gossip. He was there to actually answer the questions of people's hearts. And he wanted to do that based on prayer, and he wanted to do that also to open up the conversation so people could talk about what they believe and their struggles and their hurts and pains, but also so that, so that he could provide an, uh, a visual of a Christian community. So he had people working there who, who were all about evangelism, but he opened the home up to anybody who would come to ask and inquire about Jesus. He often said that if he had one hour with someone, He'd spend the first 55 minutes asking questions so he could know the person, understand the person, what they were living for and what they worshipped, and apply the message of Jesus in a suitable and sensitive way to them. Who in your life do you converse with on an ongoing basis? Friends, family members? Are you asking good questions to get to know them? Have you asked them what they believe? Do you know what they're living for? Their idols? If you want to reach sophisticated people, getting to know them and asking them questions is a way to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's how we know where to apply the message of Jesus. Paul's preaching of Jesus and the resurrection gives him an opportunity now to present his ideas at the Areopagus, the place that we call Mars Hill, which was a council that was set up to supervise local and religious matters. So these people would sit there and understand and, and, and try to judge matters of uh, local or religious uh, topics. And verse 19 says, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting. 
For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They had a, they had a, very, a, a deep thirst for knowledge, which is what they pursued all day, every day, the people of Athens. Back then, they didn't have Twitter. They didn't have TV. They didn't have newspaper. Oh, imagine that, eh? Can you just imagine? So when they were going to get news from someone, it wasn't coming through the internet, but it was coming verbally through maybe a town crier or someone that would make an announcement and everybody would listen. The people of Athens were known and had a reputation for being hungry to learn more and more and more. New ideas. Bring it. Bring it. Give me more. They're always ready to learn something new. Today, it'd be like someone who's always going to conferences to learn and get more insights. And now learning is a good thing. But you see, they've made learning and knowledge an ultimate thing. They worship knowledge, and they are all about it. And now Paul has the floor. The next thing we, th- we see is that communicating the good news to sophisticated people will likely include understanding them well. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I think in verse Uh, Verses 22 and 23, Paul is doing the first three principles that Jerem lays out in his book. Uh, He's showing respect. He's building the bridge for the gospel. And he's done his research to understand them well and to understand what they believe. So he's a great example of speaking the truth in love because he really does care about the people he's addressing. And he's spent time doing his homework on what they believed. He then starts in verse 22 commending them for being religious people. That's not something that we would necessarily uh, commend in um, in our society maybe. But he is here showing respect because these are people that are deeply entrenched in idols. They're they're very religious people. They're not secular people. They're not skeptical people. They're religious. And now he does something very bold and very clever Athens, you've got to understand, is, is known and proud for their intellectual history. You know this if you've done any Western civilization class. Because they boast the world's brightest and the world's best. Think of it. Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates, to name a few. Athens claims them as theirs. They're Greek people. They're sophisticated people. And Paul finds himself in the intellectual capital of the, of the Greco-Roman world. So he's, he's going against the titans of the intelligence community. And he says, Well, men, I commend your dedication. You're religious. You've got beliefs. But I've read one of your altars which says to the unknown God, apparently there is something, or rather someone, that you don't know. And that's why I've come. I've come to educate you about God. (laughs) Let me tell you about the God that your own idols says you don't know. He's he's using their technology and he's saying, listen, you don't don't know about God. This is what you, you say. And he's using that against them. Let me tell you about what you're ignorant of. Brilliantly, the theme of this speech to intellectual people is actually bookend with the word ignorance. He's speaking to intellectual people and he says, uh, there's something that you don't know. And I'm coming here to educate you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's hear the Apostle Paul's speech. The speech on Mars Hill. He's now about to reason with the intent to persuade his audience. This sermon is a work of art. It's a masterpiece. Now, let me warn you, it's addressing sophisticated people. So it might be a little brainy. 
okay? Uh, I've never been accused of being a smart person, okay? That was a joke, it's okay. Uh, but uh, this, this, is a, this is an address to some really sophisticated, smart people, okay? And in this address, we learn that communicating the good news to, to sophisticated people will likely include explaining God logically. Now, although you might not be a university student doing a master's level courses in philosophy, Paul is speaking very high and sophisticated stuff, but you'll be able to glean some stuff from this uh, speech today. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now, Paul starts his speech with creation as he did in chapter 14, as we saw last week. Because the people are not familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, with the Old Testament Bible. But since he knows the city is flooded with idols that the people made, he basically says in verse 24, God is the maker of everything. And he can't be kept inside a building. He's not crafted with hands. He's the maker of everything. So he's saying God creates life, and he supports the life that he creates. Not the other way around. We're on life support, not God. Paul's now going to challenge their obsession with idols by talking about God as the maker of the world and everything in it. He refers to him here as the Lord of heaven and earth. That is to say that he is unique. He is over everything, and he is the owner of everything, including them, which cuts against the desire we all have to live autonomous, independent, free lives. A few years ago, I was talking to a university student who grew up in church, but was now going to university. <clears throat> I was a pastor of young adults, and uh, I really liked hearing how university was going, especially for those that were in first year, because there's a lot all coming at them at once. So I was in this conversation with this um, young lady, and she said, the, the conversation shocked me, actually. Because although this person grew up in church, I just remember hearing her say a popular phrase uh, as though it were her life verse. Kind of in this conversation, in jest, she says, I do what I want. I do what I want. I was disturbed by that because this girl had grown up in church. She wasn't taking orders from anyone now, including God. Now that she'd gone to church, or sorry, now that she'd gone to university, she was now expressing her independence. I do what I want. I don't take answers from anybody. Humanity has a problem. We do what we want. And that's resisting the Lord of heaven and earth. We all, we all have a desire to live as independent people. But that's against God's design. Because God has created us to depend on Him. Not to be independent from Him. He desires for us to live under His Lordship. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, not us. Now, if you're into theology and you like uh, digging into things quite deeply, um, there's a man, a theologian that I really respect and enjoy reading. His name is John Frame. And he has said that um, after searching through the Scriptures, his, uh, his, he argues that basically the Scripture has one main theological theme going all throughout, and that is the Lordship of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. If you want to become a Christian, you must confess that Jesus is Lord. So he makes a long argument saying that the main theological theme of Scripture is that God is the Lord. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And then he breaks that down and says that there are three qualities or attributes of God's Lordship. He is the authority. He's an authority, not us. He is in control, and He is present everywhere. And so he says, the Lordship of God is the main theme of Scripture. I don't know if you buy into it, but if you'd like to learn more about John Frame, he's written many, many books about that. And God is authority. 
He is in control, and He is present. Now, the question here is to, say, is to ask this. Do we do what we want, or do we take orders from God? Do we recognize personally that God is in the authority seat, or not? Is Jesus Lord in your life? Paul goes on to say in verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Here in a calculated way, Paul is going to bring out one of the loftiest qualities of God, one of the greatest, grandest attributes of God. He teaches them about the aseity or the self-existence of God. So he says, okay, you philosophers, you're, you're into big, grand, high-in-the-cloud ideas and ideologies. Let me tell you something. God doesn't need anything. He's telling them, listen, your idols are all handmade little arts and crafts. It's like you think God needs you. But the living God, he doesn't need anything. He's the one that gives us life and breath and everything. Here he's dropping a bomb on them. He's saying, you got, you got it all wrong. God needs nothing. He doesn't, he doesn't depend on you. God, as John 5.26 says, he has life in himself. Don't get it backwards. Let it blow your mind. God depends on nobody and nothing. He's independent. He's self-sufficient. Now, the false gods in the Bible, contrast the two, and the false gods in the world religions today, they are needy. They need to be served. They, they need your money. They want, they want, they take, they take. Not the God of the Bible. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. It's common in Christianity to hear the term serving the Lord, which is uh, yeah, a term people use that they mean well, absolutely. It usually means doing things in church and caring for others, taking care of people. But let verse 25 guide you. God doesn't need anyone to serve Him. When we serve or worship or sing or give thanks, it's because He's first given to us. He gave us life, so we are to live with gratitude. He's given us Jesus, so we are to give in response to being given to. Note the order is very important here. We're not adding to God. God is not the one that's lacking here. He's not hungry. He's not poor. We're not giving to God. He's not the needy one. We needed Him and He came through. The God of the Bible is Lord of heaven and earth. And our view of Him must grow. Now, Paul is bringing this theme closer to home. He's saying, as opposed to the impersonal gods that you're making, God is personal and He's close by. So not only is this God high and lifted up, He's Lord of heaven and earth, not only does this God have life in Himself, independent, self-sufficient, not needing us for anything, Verse 26, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined and allotted, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In verse 26, we have one of the most powerful verses against racism and ethnic arrogance in the Bible. Paul challenges this attitude at the core because he knew the people he was talking to. They were Greek, and more specifically, they were from Athens. They were conceited people. They had a reputation for looking down their noses at people. They called anyone who wasn't from Athens barbarians. Listen to Jerem Bars as he comments on this. 
The Athenians believed they were a superior race. God's gift to humanity. They looked down on other peoples as arrogant children and slaves who needed to learn from their Athenian wisdom. Paul, in contrast, told them that the human race is one. That it has a common ancestry. Paul says, don't you get it? All of humanity comes from one man, Adam, and one woman, Eve. And God created them. And all the nations or the ethnicities of the world were created by God. And God has determined their times of living, their periods of power, the nations, and their physical boundaries. This is a truly mind-blowing verse. But don't miss the major point of contact Paul's going for here. He says, all humans come from God and have been placed to live on this earth by His design in the neighborhoods that they're located in. There is no supreme ethnicity on this earth. Absolutely not. Humanity is one race. We can trace our origins back all the way to Adam and Eve. Every one of us can. Paul is teaching the dignity of human beings here. A teaching we need to be reminded of over and over and over again. Because thinking we're superior isn't just a problem for Greek people in the first century. Humans are always trying to prove their supremacy, aren't they? They're the supreme race. But hear this loud and clear. There is no such thing as a superior race. No such thing. That is a demonic teaching. Going right against verse 26. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And any thought system that has categorized one ethnicity above another is a great wickedness against God. White supremacy is a wickedness against God. May the church stand against the ideas of ethnic arrogance. And may we wash ourselves of these filthy ideas. If you love to hate certain ethnicities, and if you think your ethnicity is supreme, rehearse verse 26 until your mind changes. There is no such thing as a supreme ethnicity. God made from one man every nation of mankind. The Creator orders His creation around. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He determines where people live, when in history they exist, and He does so that they could seek after Him. Look at verse 26. He's determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And why is that? Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. In verse 27, Paul says, humanity is under the cover of darkness spiritually. Everyone is in the darkness. But God has placed people where they live so that they grope around and feel their way toward Him. You ever have to go to the washroom at 3 a.m.? You grope your way around the house. There's no lights on. I do it. And uh, often you might, you might, yeah, you just have to follow a wall or something, right? And uh, you find your way to your place and you find your way back. God has put people in certain neighborhoods, in certain parts of the world. Though they're under the cover of darkness, He put them there in those situations and locations so that they might feel their way towards Him. He's not far from each of us. Paul says humanity is under the cover of darkness. He's present. Though they're in darkness, they should seek God because He's actually not far away. 
Now, He's present in His world. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He fills the world with His glory. He's present in His world. He's working and acting through events and people and history. And He's especially present in His Word. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach has written a very wonderful book on the book of Acts. And he says this, God is near to all those He has created and has acted on their behalf. Without an appreciation of God's plan and action, God will not be found, according to Paul, in this speech. Now watch as Paul is about to point them to the true God he's talking about. Verse 28. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. In verse 28, Paul does something that many people have questioned and become very uncomfortable with over the years. He's quoting their poet's literature. Which means that he was familiar enough with the popular ideas in culture. This is not a Christian poem. But don't miss this. Paul is using their literature to challenge them. He's speaking and making his point with their writings. Because they're not familiar with the Bible. So quoting the Bible wouldn't help them bring home this point. But he's learned their language. He's actually speaking their language. Because he cares about them. And he wants to win their hearts to Jesus and the resurrection. He's quoting a poem written by a man named Epimedes from the island of Crete. He also quotes this poem in the book of Titus. You might recall these words. The poem is about Zeus, who is the king and the father of all the uh, gods, according to their perspective. Okay? This is the quote. They fashioned a tomb for thee, O holy and high. The Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. But thou art not dead. Thou art risen and alive forever, for in thee we live and move and have our being. How long do you think it took Paul to prepare for this speech? I bet he was up many nights praying, preparing, quoting, writing things down. Because this is a tightly packaged message. It's a masterpiece. And here's why. What is he doing here? Don't fall asleep on me, friends. He's quoting things that they are familiar with. He's referring to a poem that they would be familiar with in their ears. And he's pointing them beyond their poets and beyond their false gods to the Creator, the true God. So this might not be a comfortable thing, but in order to win our friends, I think we can glean from this that we have to get into their world enough to point them beyond it to Jesus and the resurrection. So basically, in our day and age, Paul is quoting lyrics maybe from Drake or Kendrick. He's quoting lyrics that people would be familiar with. And he's saying, look beyond that to Jesus and the resurrection. But he's become familiar with their language because he cares for them. This man, Paul, is flexing. He's not flexing like that. He's, he's flexing like flexible. <laughs> he's being flexible. When he goes into the Jews, uh, talk to the Jews in the synagogue next week, you'll see he's, he's, got, he's got a real good handle on the Hebrew Bible. But when he's outside, he's talking to people who are philosophers, he's like, yo, Jordan Peterson, what? And he points to Jesus. So he's quoting things that they're familiar with to point them beyond it to the true God. So think of ways you can relate Christianity to those outside. Know yourself. Know your weaknesses. Don't watch things that you shouldn't watch or listen to things that you shouldn't listen to. But can you get in your friend's world a little bit? They love UFC. Might you maybe sit down and watch a UFC movie or a UFC event with them? See the ways that you can actually take a step towards them. It might mean reading their books in order to win them, listening to their music. We as Christians, if we want to reach people with the good news, we're going to have to flex a little bit. We're going to have to come out of our comfort zone. Paul certainly flexed. He even knew pagan poetry. Friends, it was about Zeus. 
Do we take an interest in what our friends listen to? Or are we waiting for them to take an interest in us to start the dialogue? Next, we need to notice that though searching around in nature and in poetry and even in philosophy can give you tracers and pointers to God, this is not enough to understand God's plan. Watch carefully how Paul transitions this conversation. He pivots the conversation to apply it personally to them. Here we see that communicating the good news to sophisticated people will likely include comparing the true God with their idols. Look at verse 29. Being then God's offspring, since he has just quoted their poets, he's saying, okay, we're on the same page here. Being then God's offspring, since you're a descendant from God, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. <clears throat> Paul now has gotten them on the same page. Okay, we're... We both are affirming that your poets believe that we're God's offspring, that we're children of God, so to speak, from creation, but not children of God in a salvation way. And here the challenge. We should not think that our Creator is like little arts and crafts that we have made by our own little imaginations. Your view of God is too small. He's the Creator. He's the owner. He formed us. He formed you. Not the other way around. You can't put this God in a little room and close him in. You can't contain this God. He's present everywhere all the time. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. I wonder if Paul had Isaiah 42 verses 5 through 8 in mind as he was preparing for this speech. Thus says God, Isaiah 42, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Here is the key to the speech. Here is the key part to the speech and the application. Friends, if you're saying, are we there yet? We're almost home, okay? Don't fall asleep. You've got to get this, okay? Verse 27, you recall, said this. He's actually not far from each one of us, right? He's present. Now Paul closes the gap and tells us how God is near each of us. How he's present and not far away. Verse 30, he says, Now he commands all people everywhere, each one of us, to repent. And here is the hardest part of speaking the gospel to the friends in our life. Challenging them to respond. Verse 30, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn around, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul started his speech, you might recall, referring to their self-admitted arrogance. Oh, sorry, ignorance. Sorry. Their ignorance to an unknown God. You don't know God. But now that he's preached to them, he says, ignorance is no longer your excuse. God commands you to repent. I have come to enlighten you. You can't say you're ignorant anymore. This message ends with a call for repentance as an escape from the coming judgment. God fixed a day for judging the world. And Jesus' resurrection is proof to all people. Literally, that, that, uh, those words there, He has given assurance. That's proof to all by raising Him from the dead. All will be held responsible to respond to King Jesus. They will meet Him as Savior or Judge, but there is no escaping Him on that day. 
But remember, in verse 27, Paul says, He's close. He's available to you. Today you can find Him. You can feel your way towards Him. You don't have to live under the cover of darkness anymore. He's reachable. He's within your reach. And how are you going to reach Him? Through His Word. Reach out by believing it. Listen to Paul in Romans 10. Romans 10, Paul says this. Something very similar. The, he says, but what does it say? He's quoting from Deuteronomy 30, which Pastor Matt will preach on in the future. The Word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's close. He's right nearby. You can't see Him, but you can believe in Him. Repent. The time is now. Have you confessed Jesus is Lord? God commands all people everywhere to repent. You can't plead ignorance now. You've heard the message. God is near in His Word. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise you can bank on. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. And here is probably Paul's most challenging point, the resurrection of Jesus. The Greeks had a popular play called Eumenides where the god Apollo said, but once the dusk drinks down a man's blood, he is gone once for all. No rising back, which literally means there is no resurrection. No spell sung over the grave can sing him back. Not even father can. That is Zeus, the father of gods. Paul now is landing the plane right on the runway. They don't believe in the resurrection at all. The poem, the plays that they love explicitly states there is no resurrection. And now Paul comes and says, you're going to be judged on that day, one day, and history shows very clearly that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's proof there's a fixed day for judgment. He now, at this point, has gutted their belief system, leaving them in a corner. And the only place for them to go in safety is to Jesus. Paul was a skilled preacher. Listen to Jerem Bars as he helps us to understand the significance of Paul's challenge here. Paul's challenges were spoken to the beliefs and convictions that were at the heart of what it meant to be Greek. And above all, Athenian. These cherished notions were their glory and their pride. Paul's purpose was to bring them to a point where they would begin to question their most precious assumptions about themselves and to doubt what they had believed. Only when this happened would they be humbled before God, turn away from what had captured their devotion, and turn instead to Jesus as their sole hope and confidence before God. Christ must be their wisdom, their source of boasting, the one who gives them a sense of identity their secure anchor for eternity. The book of Acts is a realistic book. It's true history. And people responded then as they still do now. Here the resurrection has hit the people right between the eyes. And they respond to it differently. Which teaches us that communicating the good news to sophisticated people will likely include mixed reviews. Verse 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. 
So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, Demarius, and others with them. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead had divided the crowd into three groups. And I propose to you that it does the same today. Some mock, some want to hear him again about this, and some believed. There were mockers, inquirers, and believers. What group do your friends belong to? What group do your co-workers belong to? What group do you belong to? If you're communicating the good news to sophisticated people, the goal is to persuade them to believe in Jesus. Now, we don't coerce anybody into the kingdom. We're not trying to force them to believe. We seek to persuade logically, lovingly, and it's ultimately God that opens the heart so that they'd have a change of heart and a desire to want the precious, beautiful Jesus. Have you been persuaded? Are you a believer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us proof of your existence and of that day where you fixed for all people to be judged. You've given us proof through the concrete historical event of the resurrection of Jesus. I pray if people are struggling with the resurrection that they'd make it known that they'd chat with others afterwards. And I pray, Lord, that you'd open hearts to embrace and to believe this truth about Jesus. In Jesus' name.